You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Community Church. If I don't know you, my name is Brad and uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm excited to have you with us. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Philippians. And so if you will open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, like Chris said, if you need a Bible, there's some at the Connect table. Go ahead and snag one of those. We'll have some scripture on the screen as well. But I think it's nice to have something, a physical copy in your hands. Uh, we're going to be looking at a text that we've already looked at twice so far in this series. And it's because I think this text is kind of the center of the book of Philippians. We refer to it as kind of the, the hub at the center of the wheel that is the book of Philippians. Everything that Paul says revolves around this. And so we addressed it at the, on the very first sermon of the series. Uh, we kind of dipped our toes into it last week as the model for Christian humility. And we're going to spend the whole time this morning in this text uh, because it's, it's, there's so much packed into it. So we're going we're gonna to try to dive in head first. Hey, if you're joining us and you would not consider yourself a Christian, if you are just exploring the claims of Christianity, you're checking out what uh, Jesus is all about, what the gospel is all about, I just want to say we're really glad you're here. Uh, we hope that our church is a place that is welcoming and comfortable for a non-believer to come in and check out what Christianity is all about. I'll say this sermon is going to be a good one for you because it's very simply, what is the gospel? Who is Jesus? What has he done? And what does that mean for us? Now, this is not just the message for the non-believer but it's the message that we as believers, as Christians, continually come back to day in and day out to remind ourselves of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so I'm going to read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I'll open this up in prayer, and then we'll, we'll start working our way through it. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, you are a powerful God, a God who has created the heavens and the earth. You hold everything in your sovereign hand and you sustain our lives by your grace. You are also present. You're near to the brokenhearted and you desire a relationship with us. And your power and your presence have been most clearly and gloriously revealed in the person of Jesus. So as we explore this text today, a text that declares glorious realities about the person and work of Christ, I ask that you would lead us to worship. That you would bring us to our knees before the King of kings and Lord of lords and transform our hearts to align with your will and desires. God, I ask that this text would give comfort to those who need comfort, conviction to those who need conviction, freedom for those who are in bondage, joy for those who are in despair, and eternal life for those who are dead in their sin. God, empower us by your spirit to build our lives and this church on the blueprint of the gospel and use our time together this morning and this sermon to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So we believe that the whole Bible is ultimately about Jesus, that everything from Genesis to Revelation is pointing to God the Son, Jesus Christ. But there are a handful of passages in the New Testament that really, really clearly, succinctly, uh, and in really beautiful ways give testimony to who Jesus is and what he has done. Passages like John 1, Hebrews 1 that Chris read earlier, Colossians 1, and then this passage in Philippians 2. Our mission, as Hunter said, as a church, is to make Jesus the hero. And this morning, uh, in this text about Christ, we're going to see four glorious realities about Jesus. These are realities that make him the one true hero of our world. And they're realities that make him worthy of not just our simple appreciation or interest or respect, but they're realities that make him worthy of our worship and the surrender of our, to- of our whole lives. And so we're going to look at these four glorious realities about Jesus. The first one is the glorious reality of the divinity of Jesus. The text says that Christ was in the form of God. Jesus is God himself. Uh, in, the, in the early church, there was a guy who na- was named Arius, and he promoted a doctrine of Christ that later became, became known as Arianism. And Arianism has a view of Jesus that he is not co-equal or co-eternal with God the Father but rather God the Son, Jesus, was created by God the Father. <clears throat> this is one of the major topics of the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325 AD, uh, which gave us a lot of the language that we have around the divinity of Christ and the Trinity. And it's declared Arianism to be a heresy and affirmed the divinity of Christ, stating that Jesus was not created, but in fact is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. Now, the term Arianism is not necessarily used in modern language today or used to describe anyone's theology, any kind of group or church's theology. But, for example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have the same view of Jesus, that he was created and is not equal to God the Father. But this is not the view of Jesus that we find in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is that Jesus is 100% God and fully divine. John 1, text I mentioned earlier, says that Jesus was in the beginning, that he was with God and he is himself God. John 14, 9, Jesus himself says that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at God the Father. 
Hebrews 1, the passage that Chris read earlier, 1.3 says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says again of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. There are two very simple categories that things in the world can exist in. One is creator and the other is created. Something can't fit in both of those categories. You are either creator or created. And text after text places Jesus in the creator category, meaning that he cannot be created. So Jesus has eternally existed as the one true God of the universe, fully divine creator and sustainer of, of everything. The second glorious reality that we see in this text is the humanity of Jesus. While Jesus is 100% divine, he is also 100% human. Verse 7 says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a, of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was fully human, meaning he experienced life in this world just as you and I do, just as a human does. He got hungry and tired. He experienced joy and laughter. He felt pain and grief. His hands got dirty and his hair needed washed. Jesus of Nazareth was an actual human being that walked around the nation of Israel about 2,000 years ago. Uh, the fancy theological term for this is incarnation. When God, the son takes on flesh and comes and enters our world to live among us as a human. Uh, the text says he emptied himself, but this doesn't mean that he stopped being divine as he took on flesh. I think a helpful illustration is the show undercover boss. Even if you haven't watched it, you get the concept bosses put on a disguise and then work as an employee in their business or company or restaurant or whatever it is. And the employees don't know that it's their boss. And this is kind of like uh, the, the incarnation. The, the boss still has all of the authority of the boss. They still have the power to hire and fire and, and the control of the company. Yet for a time, they set those privileges aside to live as and take the form of an employee. And so Jesus never stopped being divine, never stopped being God, never stopped having the authority of the creator, yet put, put those privileges aside for a time to take on the form of a human. And so Jesus was fully God, but also fully man. Uh, the fancy theological term for this that you absolutely do not need to remember or write down, but it's fun to say, is the hypostatic union. 100% God, 100% man at the same time, not lacking any of the essence of either, completely and totally God and man. The third glorious reality that we see in this text about Jesus is his sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. So we've, who is Jesus, God and man? Now what has he done? Is the sacrifice. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became flesh to dwell among us for a purpose. His life had a, an end, a telos, a goal. And that goal was his death. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He was obedient to the will of the father. We get a glimpse of this obedience in the garden of Gethsemane before Jesus is arrested and placed on trial. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying with his disciples. 
And in his prayer, he, he's, we get a, get a glimpse into the agony of, of Jesus as he looks ahead to the cross, as he's anticipating the pain that is ahead of him. And he prays to the Father and he says, if there's any other way to make this happen, if there's any other way to provide salvation for your people, then let's do that. Nevertheless, your will be done. We get this incredible picture of Jesus's humanity in the face of death, and yet he chooses obedience to the will of the Father, even though that obedience meant his death. And this death wasn't just any death, uh, and it certainly wasn't a heroic death, not a noble death, not a death of a king or a warrior, but death on a cross, a humiliating death, a sinner's death. Jesus died for the sins of the world, giving up his life so that all who trust in him could have life. This death on the cross was absolutely necessary for God to save us from eternal destruction and purify us for his kingdom. It was painful. It was brutal. It was agonizing. This death that Jesus willingly endured for us because of his love for us. The fourth glorious reality in this text is the exaltation of Jesus. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus lived as a human. He died a sinner's death. He was buried, put in the ground, and then rose from the grave. And a piece of the gospel story that often gets left out in our telling of it is Jesus' ascension. After spending time on earth post-resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven where he sits right now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' resurrection and ascension proves that the claims he made about himself were true. It secures our salvation for eternity, and it promises to those who trust in him that we too will have new, glorious, resurrected life. And one day, everything and all of creation will bend the knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. God will get the glory. Jesus will get the praise. Satan's sin and death have lost, and Jesus is victorious. Okay, these are four glorious truths about Jesus that are revealed in this text. These things shape our Christology, our theology of Jesus, his divinity and his humanity, and then his humiliation and exaltation, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And they make Jesus worthy of our worship and praise. They're the reasons, it's the reason we strive to make him the hero of our lives in this world and of our church. But do these truths really matter? There's maybe a few of you that are nerds like me and you love words like hypostatic union and incarnation and Arianism and you jotted those down really quick. But for the rest of us uh, who don't care about those kinds of things, what do these things actually have to say about my everyday life? Do these glorious truths about Jesus have any bearing on me right here, right now? In the chronic pain that I'm dealing with or the confusing illness, in my failing marriage, in my struggle to parent rebellious children, in my trying to figure out what career to pursue, in the stress of a lack of finances, unsure futures, do these truths have anything to do with my day-to-day -day life? I would say the answer to that is absolutely, yes, they do. These things matter a great deal and have everything to do with our everyday lives. First of all, if you get Jesus wrong, you get God wrong. So confessing Jesus Christ as Lord is what brings glory to God. And so if we get the son wrong, if we get Jesus wrong, we've gotten God wrong. And getting God wrong dishonors him. And a wrong view of Jesus is a wrong view of God. And it's a wrong view of God that ultimately separates us from him for eternity. 
So getting Jesus right is vitally important. Secondarily and similarly, 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 is that how you say that word? Uh, our Christology has implications for eternal life. John 17, three says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So thinking that Jesus was merely a good teacher, a good moral teacher, an inspiring legend, some kind of unique or special prophet or a successful revolutionary does not gain you eternal life. Knowledge of the one true God and of Jesus Christ, who he sent is the path to eternal life. And so our Christology our right knowledge of Jesus matters. Beyond this, these glorious realities of Jesus, these theological truths have all kinds of implications for our everyday life. The fact that Jesus is fully 100% God means that he has power. The kind of power that creates and sustains an entire universe, the kind of power that makes rain fall and lightning strike, the kind of power that makes dead things live, the kind of power that defeats the enemy and sin and death. And if Jesus has that kind of power to create and sustain all things, then does he not also have power over the situation that you're going through in your life? Does he not also have sovereign control over everything that comes your way? Because Jesus is fully God. He has the power, the power and authority to forgive sins, grant eternal life, heal wounds, restore brokenness, and reconcile us to God. Jesus' divinity means that he has power to do these things. Jesus' humanity means that he wants to. Jesus is not just a distant, powerful, authoritarian tyrant, but also a personal, present, and near friend. Jesus' humanity means that he has endured to the fullest everything we ever will. Hunger, pain, sadness, grief, suffering, loss, fatigue. He knows what it's like to cry. He knows what it's like to laugh. He knows what it's like to lose someone close to you. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be angered at injustice and righteous, unrighteousness. Anything and everything that we endure in our humanity as humans, he knows. And he can sympathize with us greater than anyone can. Because Jesus is fully human, it also means that he can be a sufficient substitute for us. His divinity gives him the ability to save. His humanity gives him the means. The blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament was never enough to totally atone for the sins of the Israelites because bulls and goats were never a sufficient or equivalent substitute for humanity. But Jesus, a real life flesh and blood human, can fully and completely represent us on the cross so that our sins could once and for all be atoned for and completely washed away. See, if, if Jesus is just God, then you have a tyrant with power and authority to make life either wonderful or miserable. If he is just a man, just human, then you have a teddy bear there when you need comfort or a shoulder to cry on, but no power to do anything about your problems or fears. But being both fully God and fully man, Jesus is more like a loving father with strength and authority and the power and ability to rescue a child from harm, but also the comforting, warm, loving embrace of a friend who cares. Jesus' divinity and humanity, this hypostatic union has incredible implications for our life because Jesus sees your pain. He sees your suffering. He sees your brokenness. He knows what it's like. He's experienced it as well. And he wants to do something about it. And in fact, he has done something about it in his sacrifice and exaltation. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross means that there is no more condemnation for those who, are, who trust in him for salvation. 
Jesus paid for the price of our sin in full, totally satisfying the wrath and justice of God in our place. He has done something about our brokenness by becoming broken himself on the cross. He has done something about our sin by taking the penalty for it. He has done something about our suffering by suffering for us. The sacrifice of Jesus gives us freedom in our day-to-day lives because we've been washed white as snow by the blood that he has shed. We don't have to hide in shame or guilt for our sins, past, present, or future, because they've all been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Psalm 32, 1 to 2 says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and, when, and in whose spirit is no deceit. There's no joy like the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven and that God is not holding our iniquity over our heads. That forgiveness is only possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And though this is still true, we still struggle daily with sin and suffering, the broken world that we live in. And so we look to the exaltation of Jesus for hope and victory. Jesus' victorious exaltation is a constant reminder to us that he has won, he is winning, and he will win. Jesus is victorious. The sin in your life will not have the last say. The sickness you are struggling with will not have the last say. The enemies in your life that you can't escape will not have the last say. Even death, the worst possible thing that can happen to us in this life, will not have the last say. Jesus Christ will have the last say. He sits right now at the right hand of God with the earth as his footstool, victorious, reigning gloriously over his creation. And one day he will put away for good sin, death, and the devil. And we will be free from pain, free from brokenness, free from sin, free from illness and sickness, free from grief. And all of this will be true because God has highly exalted Jesus Christ and given him the name that is above every name. See, God created a good world where humans were to cultivate it into blessing and benefit for one another while enjoying a life-giving relationship with God. But we, collectively and individually as humans, have decided that we don't need God, that we could rule this world on our own, and so we rebel against him. This is what the Bible refers to as sin, and ultimately it separates us from the source of life, from God. It dooms us to eternal death, and it destroys our world. But God, being rich in mercy and steadfast love for his people, sent Jesus on a rescue mission to right what we had wronged, and restore what we had broken, and bring us back into a relationship with him. Jesus, the God-man, fully divine and fully human, came into our world to live a righteous life, humbled himself and became, to become obedient to the point of death, to the Father's will, died a sinner's death on a cross. He was buried, but then rose from the grave and ascended into heaven to rule and reign as the rightful king and Lord over creation. And anyone who would come to Jesus in faith will be forgiven their sins and given eternal life and a restored and renewed creation with full unending access to God's life-giving presence. This is the gospel. It's good news. It's the good news of what God is doing to reconcile all things to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it's only good news for those who confess Jesus as Lord. The implications of these glorious realities of Jesus, his power and his presence, his forgiveness and his victory are only true for those who believe in him. See, the gospel is a proclamation of good news, but it's also an invitation to come to Christ, 
And so I would invite anyone within the sound of my voice who has not confessed Jesus as Lord to bend the knee to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and confess that you need a savior, that the sin in your life is not just destroying you, but those around you and is leading you to doom and destruction. And so Jesus offers salvation and rescue from our sin. And I would implore you to do so before it's too late. Because you notice in the text, a day is coming when every living creature is going to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. They'll just be in different places. For some in heaven with Jesus in his presence, confessing Jesus as Lord for others apart from him, not in his presence, but still fully and keenly aware of Jesus's lordship over all things. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a, a pretty famous kind of proposition He gives three options for who Jesus could be. Once you've established Jesus was a historical person, which basically no scholar would say today that Jesus didn't exist. It's an agreed upon fact. Jesus was an actual person. And then once you establish that the gospels give us accurate historical accounts of what Jesus said and did, which we have a ton of evidence that this is the case, then there's only three viable options for who Jesus could be. Anyone who says the things that Jesus said and claims the things about himself that Jesus claims is either a liar, a lunatic, or they really are Lord. So Jesus either lied and fooled a bunch of people, was a crazy person who thought he was God, or really is who he said he was and is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so that's the decision we all have to make. Who's Jesus? Is he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or is he actually really Lord? The decision to declare Jesus as Lord is not just a one-time thing. We do it and then we move on to Christianity 102. We daily come back to the gospel to be reminded of Christ's lordship over our lives. And his lordship acts as an anchor that we can hold on to in the storms of life. In addictions, in messy, broken marriages, through difficult breakups, through the loss of loved ones, unemployment, chronic pain, confusing illnesses, whatever else comes our way in this life, in our broken world, we know that Jesus is powerful and present and and that in him there's forgiveness and ultimately victory. I want to conclude with a story. It's a familiar story. It's one that you're likely familiar with. And it's actually a story from scripture that anticipates the heroics of Jesus. It's the story of Joseph, uh, which we get from the last several chapters of the book of Genesis. Joseph was the second youngest of 12 brothers, and he was his father's favorite. His father loved him more than all of his other children, and he made that known by giving Joseph this famous uh, coat of many colors. And Joseph's brothers were jealous and hated his brother because because of their father's love for him. And so they plotted against him to destroy him. They captured him, they threw him in a pit, and eventually they sold him into slavery. So separated from his home and from his family, From the father who loved him, Joseph served as a slave in the house of Potiphar until he was wrongly accused of crimes he didn't commit and thrown into prison. He lived in years in prison until eventually he was brought into Pharaoh's court. And through a series of events, he was elevated to a position of power over all of Egypt, second in command below Pharaoh. And while he was second in command over Egypt, God used Joseph to prepare for a famine that ultimately strikes the land. And during this famine, Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt looking for food, looking for salvation. And they encounter Joseph, who they don't recognize at first, but who over time reveals himself to them and ultimately saves their lives by giving them food and a home. He doesn't hold their sins against them, but rather sees his story as God planning all along the salvation of his people through the evil sins of his brothers. 
We read stories like this, and our initial reaction is to put ourselves in Joseph's place. We want to be the hero of the story. We want the glory. We want the accolades. But the reality is we are much more like the brothers in the story than we are like Joseph. And Jesus is really the greater Joseph. Because Jesus, the son of God, comes to earth to live and die because of our sin against him. But God raises him up and exalts him in power where he offers salvation to the very people that put him on the cross in the first place. Our sin, our evil placed Jesus on the cross, but all along it was part of God's plan to provide salvation to the world. And this is why we strive to make Jesus the hero. This is why we proclaim his name. This is why we worship him and submit our lives to his lordship. Because Jesus, though he was God, emptied himself and became a man to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and rise victoriously from the grave to sit at the right hand of God in power. In him and in him only is there forgiveness for sins and eternal abundant life. And so we all together collectively as his church, as his people, confess him as Lord. We bend the knee and we shout praise to God, praise to Jesus for the rest of our life and into eternity. Let's pray. God, thank you for these glorious realities about Jesus. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sin to be separated from you, but you stepped into our world through your son to save us and rescue us. You've given us eternal life. You've granted us access to your kingdom. You've saved us from shame and guilt and the sting of our sin. Jesus, you took all of that on the cross with you. And now those who are in you are free. So help us now to come to you and worship in song, but ultimately God, to worship you with our lives. So submit to you, Jesus, as Lord, and to give everything we have over to you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.